All right. Uh, you know this story. You know what Jonah did wrong. You know where he's headed. He's been called to Nineveh. And this story, the story of Jonah, raises a question. It raises a practical, a very pragmatic question that we often face, whether you're a parent trying to get your kids to get church and to appreciate what's going on here, whether you're a friend struggling to uh, help another struggling individual see the error of their ways, see the goodness of Christ, trying to help them grow in their relationship with God, we have this very practical question. What do we do with immature faith, with weak faith, with faith that you kind of look at and you say, you know what, that faith, it seems genuine. It, se it seems like they're a believer, but they have got a long way to go. If there's anybody that's had a long way to go, it's Jonah. Uh, Jonah has an even longer way to go because he's gone the wrong way for so long. And God responds kindly to Jonah's weak faith. And so we want to see uh, how this passage unpacks that idea. And what we can say is that this is precisely, even this chapter, it's precisely what this chapter is about. It is displaying for us, it is exploring for us where Jonah is and where God is taking him and how God's going to get him there. Where Jonah is, how, what God is, where God is taking him, how he's going to get him there. Those are the questions of this passage. And we need to explore that together this morning. We're going to look at it along three angles. First off, we're going to look at where Jonah is. As he is in a period of fitting punishment. We're going to look at a fitting punishment. We're going to look at a weak prayer, an incomplete prayer, if you prefer. And we're going to look at God's transforming love. Fitting punishment, weak prayer, transforming love. First, where is Jonah? Jonah is in the depths of Sheol. Now, it's difficult to kind of juggle when certain actions take place. We're told that this prayer follows Jonah being swallowed by a fish. So, the sequence of events here, Jonah is on the ship. He gets reluctantly thrown out of the ship by the righteous sailors, the pagan righteous sailors who are trying to serve the gods in whatever way seems fit to them, and even in their blindness, they do a better job than Jonah. That was last week. They throw Jonah off the ship because Jonah told them to, and Jonah does what people thrown off ships in storms normally do, which is sink. Jonah reflects on this. In this prayer, which is uttered after the sinking, okay, so in the sequence of events, we have the sinking. Jonah is, is off the ship, and now he is sinking into the depths. And Jonah, in his prayer, which is uttered later, reflects on that period. He says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Now, these are actually loaded words. You can read that and think uh, Jonah is just being flowery there. He's just being poetic. This is, after all, a poem, and poets would love to uh, uh, engage in a hyperbole, in exaggeration. But, but Jonah actually especially if you know the ancient world, if you know your Bible, you'll see this language of the deep come up quite a bit. And it doesn't just mean the deep. It doesn't mean like down far into the ocean. It's kind of like, it's kind of code. It's metaphorical code. 
it would be better, you know, we think of Jonah sinking into the ocean, and as terrifying as that would be, we think of that language, and it's purely physical. It, you know, it's purely water and drowning and death. Jonah sees these things, but he sees beyond them. He sees the realities that he is drowning in this deep ocean, in the waters. But he sees beyond it for what these things stand for. He knows what uh, the ancient Israelites knew, which is that the deep, to say the deep, that, that is to say hell itself. It would be similar it, to our word, the abyss. Right? If you've watched that old 80s action movie, or uh, if you've just got, you know, what it means to go, you know, I descended into the abyss. Right? You could, that's highly loaded metaphorical language. And it's the kind of language that Jonah is using here. He's, he's not just saying, I descended into the deep waters. I went into the deep end of the pool. He's saying the deep, the, the abyss. Jonah knows that he is being removed from the very presence of God. Jonah knows that he is descending uh, to the roots of the mountains, to, the, uh, to Sheol itself, to the underworld. That's where he's headed. Jonah knows that, that if it ends now, if it ends here, I will be removed from the presence of God. Here's how he puts it. You have cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. The floods surrounded me. The waves and your billows passed over me. And if that was not a, a bad enough, then I said, I am driven away from your sight. That's the punishment that comes upon Jonah. And it is a fitting punishment. It fits the crime. We've noticed this. If you've been with us uh, as we've explored the minor prophets, we've noticed this as we've, have, as we've done those, that when God, there's different kinds of suffering in the world, right? There's different ways in which that God causes us to suffer. There's that kind of general suffering, which seems so meaningless at the time, the suffering that is death or an illness that comes upon you all of a sudden and unexpectedly, a lot of times you can't attach a particular meaning to it, and you're just wondering, why is God doing this? But another reason why we suffer is because God disciplines His children. And it's sometimes a question, how do you spot which one is which? I mean, people get sick. One of the reasons people get sick is because God is disciplining them. How do, you, how do you know if you're sick now because God is disciplining you for some sin or another, or if it's just God strengthening you for some future trial or some future glory? Which is it? How do you know whether or not God is disciplining you? Well, one of the answers that we find consistently in the minor prophets is that the, dis, that the suffering that comes as a result of God's discipline fits the crime. There is a poetry to it. There's a poetic justice about it. So that when you're in that moment, you say, oh yeah, I kind of deserve this. This fits what I did. There's a fittingness to it. Especially as your kids get older, right? This is how parents discipline. You, you know, if a kid is uh, uh, being obnoxious, what you do is you kind of remove them from the crowd, right? You, you isolate them, time out, grounding, whatever it is. You, you want the discipline to be a time of reflection, a, t a moment in which they can reflect on what they did and repent of it. 
And that's what discipline, that's what discipline looks like. When, uh, you know, it's, for some, uh, I don't want to get into the controversy that is spanking or anything like that, but uh, spanking is different, right? There you're going for muscle memory. You're not, there's no time, there's no place to really think about what, uh, you know, and repent of what's being done. It's just pain. It just hurts. And the point is, it just hurts. But for most kinds of discipline, particularly as, uh, as we mature, most types of punishments fit the crime. You cheat at work, you lose your job. You're unfaithful to your spouse, you lose your marriage. There's a fittingness, an appropriateness to the suffering. What we need to see here is that Jonah's punishment fits his crime. Jonah doesn't want to have anything to do with God's plan. Doesn't want to have anything to do with God's will. Jonah goes in the opposite direction. God, uh, God says go east. Jonah goes due opposite. He goes west. So what does God do? He takes him down. Down into the ground. Down into Sheol. And the point is, you have lost the right to be in my presence. You want to get away from me? I'll show you where you should go. There's only one place. There's only one place where you can be truly free from me, and that is hell. The presence of God in the form of his wrath. And right before he gets there, Jonah cries out for salvation. He cries out for salvation, and the other fittingness to this punishment, the reason you know this is discipline and not absolute justice, not God's retributive justice, not the final word on the fact, is that God sends a fish. He sends a fish to rescue Jonah. Jonah lifts up his, uh, uh, remembers God, a little too little too late, but he remembers his God, and he cries out for salvation, and God sends the fish as the answer to that prayer. We sometimes think of the fish as the judgment, the punishment. The fish is the savior. The fish is what rescues Jonah. The, it's the deep. It's hell itself that is the punishment. It's the deep and the lack of God's presence, the exile, that is the judgment. And the fish comes and it rescues Jonah from that. God's disciplining hand is terrible, but it is, uh, again, and we've seen this in the Minor Prophets, but it is not the end of the story. There is, discipline always takes place for a time. And what God does when He disciplines us is He, he gives us a period of time in which we can reflect, repent, and turn back to Him. The fish in these three days is that opportunity for Jonah. It's his time out. It's his time of reflection on what he did and where he needs to go and what he needs to be doing and why he's in the place that he's in. God still does that to us. He still causes us to suffer as a disciplining God, as a loving God who disciplines his children. He still causes us to suffer and he gives us time to reflect and it is incumbent upon us, the first application, it is incumbent upon us to use that time Use that time well. Don't jump into the next thing. You know, when the suffering passes, when God answers your prayer, I wish this thorn in the flesh would pass from me and God takes it out. 
use that time to reflect, to repent, to fast, to pray. We see this fitting punishment. Jonah uses his time to pray. He uses the time appropriately and he prays out to God. And so we need to look at Jonah's incomplete prayer. Notice, first of all, what's good about this prayer. There are good things to say about this prayer. He calls out to the Lord in his distress. This is a prayer. This is a, I would say it's a generic prayer of thanksgiving. I will, I, but I wish the voice of thanksgiving, uh, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is a typical prayer of thanksgiving that could be in the Psalter. You know, you could see it in the Psalms. It's, it's, it's that good as a prayer of thanksgiving. Jonah is thanking God for this whale. That's how you know the whale's a good guy in this story, is that Jonah thanks God for him. Thank you for the whale. It's through this whale, it's in the belly of this whale that I am saved from the belly of Sheol. So there's a fittingness to the salvation as well. But I want to reflect a little bit on the fact that this is not a good prayer. This is an incomplete prayer. You might not spot that. But if you're paying attention, you'll see little lines in this prayer that you kind of want to laugh at. They're a little ironic. They don't really fit. It's hard to see how this fits exactly Jonah's situation. First of all, notice what's not in this prayer. You got a, a prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer of thanksgiving for salvation. But if we were trying to reconstruct the circumstances behind this prayer, what we would think is that Jonah is some sort of innocent victim set upon by enemies. And at that time, he called out to God and, and God restored. There is no confession in this prayer. There's no sense of shame. There's no sense of, I, I did what was wrong. There's no, God saved me, but there's no sense that that was a merciful act. God saved me because of his mercy. Actually, it's quite the opposite. Jonah says, Jonah compares himself. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Those who pay regard to, uh, to idols, pagans, God doesn't show them love. God doesn't show them mercy. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Rings a little hollow when you consider Jonah 1. Precisely the ones who are serving idols are the ones who are saved, are the ones who are serving God. It's, it's, it's self-righteous irony. Jonah thinks he, he presumes on God's favor. He thinks he deserves this. There's no confession. And in the place of confession, what we get is self-righteous judgment. Judgment on these pagans those who sacrificed idols. This kind of belittling, presumptuous judgment on these pagans who were more righteous than he was, who obeyed the will of God. And yet here he condemns them. Here he judges them. You get no sense of shame in this psalm. You get no sense of guilt, no sense of confession. 
Sisters, brothers, we do that. We pray that the Lord's disciplining hand would pass away from us, that God would take out that thorn of the flesh, that God would take away that suffering. And when He does, we're thankful. But we don't use that time to reflect on what we did, on, on how we got there, on the position that makes us guilty before God. We're so quick. We love to be saved. Oh, we do. We love it when God rescues. But we don't like to think about what God is rescuing us from. We don't like to think about the, the way in which we got to that place and the fact that we deserved it. Jonah prays this prayer. And it is a prayer of thanksgiving. But it lacks the marks of someone who truly understands what, they've, what they themselves have been through, what they themselves have done. It's, it's a pathetic apology. It's weak. Even the thanksgiving in it is, is weak. God has saved, but I deserved it. It was right for God to do this because I have a thankful heart. Notice also, even that verse that we looked at uh, earlier, which would be, by the way, the perfect opportunity to confess. Then I said, I am driven from your sight. Even there, be the perfect opportunity for Jonah to say, I am driven from your sight because I left your presence. But he doesn't. It's, it's as if he doesn't actually understand what's going on. It's as if he's completely missed the point of what's happening to him. The other thing you don't see in this prayer, which you should expect, maybe there's a slight sign of it, what I have vowed I will pay, but what you don't actually see is a vow, a commitment. One of the ways that you can spot true, genuine thankfulness is it results in a kind of commitment. Somebody who has received some, a gift far beyond what they expected. Maybe, maybe you've been in this position where somebody gave you a gift. Uh, it was a standard Christmas gift or something like that. And you opened it up and you know, you're expecting a token uh, fruitcake. And out comes, I don't know, an Xbox, kids. Or like um, a, a new cookware. Or something just far above and beyond what you'd ever expect from this particular individual. And the immediate feeling you feel is a, com a complex combination, right? You feel gratitude. This is really helpful. This, this is exactly what I wanted. This is well beyond everything that I received. And you also feel this kind of debt. This, I want to I sh show you some kindness. I want to show you some sort of response. I, I need to respond to this in a way that fits the gift. What we don't see from Jonah is that kind of response, the Zacchaeus response. I have been forgiven much. Lord, take my life. Let it be. Take my life. Do what you will. I'll do whatever you want. I'll do it gladly. We don't see that kind of response that I'll give back four times what I received, what I took. You see that with Zacchaeus? You don't see that with Jonah you see a kind of half-hearted thank you. You see that with Paul. You see that with Paul in similar circumstances. Paul, like Jonah, is called 
to be a prophet to the Gentiles. He's called to go to the Gentiles to preach. And Paul knows Romans 11. He knows how much he's been forgiven. He knows the debt that he owes to God. God tells him, I will show Paul how much he will suffer for my sake. And Paul says, I will endure it gladly because I know what I've been forgiven. And so what he does when he is called to be a prophet to the Gentiles is magnify his ministry. He doesn't like it that the Jews have been passed over either. He reflects on this in Romans 11. He says, I don't like this. I wish my brethren would come to faith. I wish they would believe in the Christ. I don't like that they have been hardened and that they are falling away by their own acts and by their own choices. But my solution to that is to do what God tells me and to do it in the best way I can, to magnify His ministry, he says, in order to make the Jews jealous. There's this response of forgiveness, this overabundant thankfulness that acts, that does, that seeks to serve. We don't see that in Jonah. We don't see confession. We don't see a recommitment to belong to the Lord. There are weak prayers in Scripture. There are bad prayers in Scripture. I actually think I want to preach a series called Bad Prayers in Scripture. And I made a quick list, and there's about 12 of them that came to mind. Uh, Prayers in Scripture that are incomplete, that miss the mark, that perhaps sound good, but aren't quite there yet. So what does God do with Jonah? Jonah doesn't seem like he gets it. He doesn't seem like he's learned his lesson. If you're still in doubt about that, go to Jonah 4. This same exact thing is going to happen again. It's not the belly of the, it's not the, belly of the uh, ocean. It's the belly of the desert. It's not a fish, it's a plant. Same thing. Jonah has learned no lessons. What does God do with our weak faith, our immature faith, our genuine faith that is immature, that needs to grow, that needs to be stretched, that misses the mark, misses the point? How does God deal with that? Well, the first thing that God does, and we've already noticed, noticed it in this passage, is He disciplines us. He puts us in situations that expose our disobedience, that punish it appropriately so that we should be able to spot and reflect on the crime, the nature of the crime, the true depth of the crime. Jonah is supposed to know that when he went west, what he should be doing is going down. That that action of going away from the presence of God, that it's telos, that it's end, that it's, that it's fulfillment would be hell itself. He's supposed to reflect on that. And in the same way, when God disciplines us, when he, when he disciplines us for the things that we've done wrong, it's that opportunity to reflect, to see what God is doing, why He's doing it, to repent and return to Him. The other thing that God does, and it's good that He does this, He does this for His children. He does this even for the pagans, awaiting the day when they too might know Him. He does this until the end will come. He holds back and saves. He disciplines us, and it's terrible. Sometimes we feel that this is more than we can endure, that it's more than we can bear. But He holds back. There's a point that He will not go. He sends Jonah to the depths of the ocean, but He does not send him to Sheol. He holds back and saves Jonah by His mercy through a fish. 
both God's justice and His mercy are designed by Him to point us to a better faith, to fuller faith, a more perfect, a more mature faith. And you need both. You need both His discipline and His mercy. You need His discipline because you need to know where your sin is taking you. Sin seems so delightful. It seems attractive to us. It seems good to us to, to, to uh, do whatever we want in church. It's so hard to listen. It's so hard to pay attention. I just fiddle away the time and try to get through this. Sin seems attractive to us. It seems good to go after it. It seems attractive. It seems pleasing. And what God does when He disciplines us is He shows us, actually, this is what your sin is doing. This is what you're doing. This is where it ends. This is where it leads. He shows us the ditch that we're going to end up in. Did your mom ever tell you that? You keep this up, you're going to end up in a ditch somewhere. My mom told me that. You're going to keep this up, you're going to end up in a ditch somewhere. God shows us that ditch. He gives us a vision of it. He puts us in situations of suffering where we can see, actually, this is what my sin is. This is what it's doing to those around me. I really hurt this person. I'm not, uh, th that friendship that I have with him, it's not broken because, uh, because of some circumstantial matter. It's broken because I'm a jerk. And now I see what it's going to cost. I need to repent. I need to be kinder to those around me. That's what discipline does. It shows you the cost of sin. It shows you in ways more clear than your heart will what sin will cost you. And then, God, by His mercy, uh, rescues us. We see the pit coming. We see the abyss on the horizon. And at just the right time, God saves us. God rescues us. And that is designed to remind us of the goodwill of God and where He wants to take us, the glory yet to come. It's designed to inspire us to move forward. God sends Jonah down because Jonah wanted to go west. God sends Jonah down into the abyss because Jonah thought west was good and he wanted to show Jonah that west is down. West is suffering, wrath, judgment. God takes Jonah east God takes Jonah out of the belly of the mouth of the whale to show him that up is much better. To show him where he's going. Not down, but up. So, go east. Commit yourself to the Lord. How should we respond? There are all sorts of layers here, right? Because we struggle with this very thing, weak faith. We struggle with it on all sorts of levels. Some of you are trying to disciple others, whether it's a child or a friend, a family member, another member of the church. You're trying to disciple other people and you're trying to help them to see that their sin is causing great damage to them and that they should repent of it and do something different. You're trying to help them do that. It's really, I was asked the other day, uh, not by anybody here, but a parent uh, was wondering, my three-year-old is an absolute terror. It's like they don't even know what it means to be a Christian. And I just was, you know, you kind of want to say, oh, you have a three-year-old. That's called three. 
and uh, and that's you know that's where they are. But you but at the same time that desire right that desire for maturity and faith is still there, and you want you want your kid to grow to grow up into that which they have been trained in Sunday school to learn these things. A, a friend who's just doing the exact opposite of what they should do, and, and you want them to see that the the suffering that their experiences is they is them making their own bed that they brought this upon themselves and that God is trying to warn them to turn the other way? How do you do that? You do what God does. Jesus is so good. Those stories in the Gospels are so good. Jesus does this all the time with his disciples. Isn't he so patient? He rebukes Peter. Peter, get behind me, Satan. He rebukes Peter when Peter's faith fails him. But then he restores him to full fellowship and shows him great kindness, and calls him to greater obedience. In the same way, that's how we should act with one another. We, we need to be able to rebuke when we see sin. It's hard. We don't like to be unliked. We don't like to be unkind. We think this is mean. But we, we need to say, look, this, what you're doing right now is sin, and here's where it's going to go. You're going to end up in a ditch. We need to be able to say that. But we say it while at the same time showing mercy. Let me pick you up. Let me take you where you need to be. Let me help you. A lot of times, God is doing this to us, and we don't know it. We don't spot it. We don't understand. We're clueless. Jonah seems to be clueless. But there's hope here. There's hope because in being able to spot suffering for what it is, the disciplining hand of God, it can, it can, by the Spirit, shock us out of our disobedient lifestyle and encourage maturity of faith. Here's what James says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Your faith is designed to guard you. It's designed to protect you. It's designed to help you when you're in, when you're in times of need. It's designed to prevent you from doing stupid stuff like going west when, G, uh, when God says go east. It's, de it's designed to do that. But what is required for faith to have its full effect is maturity. You need to be mature in your faith to be able, for faith to be strong enough to help you on this path and to keep you persevering to the end. You need to press on to maturity of faith. And what James tells you, if you're feeling, Tommy's saying I need to press on to maturity of faith and I don't know how to do that. James is telling you, count suffering a joy because it's precisely designed to do that. That's what it's for. All suffering does it the meaningless suffering, the general suffering that we all face, particularly the suffering of God's disciplining hand, what it's designed to do is to test and mature our faith, to make it stronger, to make it more perfect, so that we might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what Christ is doing in us. When you wonder why, why did this have to happen to me? Why does it have to be so hard? 
Remember, Christ uses our suffering. If we're able to see it for what it is, He uses our suffering, He uses our pain to mature our faith and to make us stronger. Don't lose the moment. Don't waste your time out. Think about what you did. That's what we need to do. We think about what we did, and we know that we serve a God who forgives and shows mercy when we repent. Turn to Him, recommit to Him, serve Him, because you know that to go east is to go up. Let's pray.